Uh, If you'll turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, we'll be in verses 16 through 23. Colossians chapter 2, 16 to 23. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then this will close us out on chapter 2. We'll start chapter 3 next week. So I grew up in the late 80s and the early 90s. That's when I was really, you know, sort of teenage years. And that was the height of the youth group culture in the Southern Baptist Convention and even in broader evangelicalism. The Cold War was on. Drug abuse and sexually transmitted diseases were prevalent. Teenage pregnancy numbers during that time when I was a teenager were rising drastically. You can look at the charts and see that uh, there had been a lot of teenage pregnancy in the 1950s because people married when they were still teenagers. Uh, But by the time we got to the late 80s and early 90s, uh, that had dropped off significantly in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And then late 80s, it started to rise again as there were many teenage pregnancies. There was music back in those days. Uh, If you'll remember, Tipper Gore, which was Al Gore's wife, led a charge to have stickers placed on albums that contained explicit lyrics. And so there was a lot of music that was being marketed to teenagers who were consuming that music that was laced with profanity. Everywhere you turned, it seemed like the world was moving into an era that did not share or respect the moral ethic found in Scripture. Our country was changing with the change of generations. No longer was the greatest generation in charge of everything, but it was moving towards where more baby boomers were taking control of institutions and in the political realm. In the meantime, evangelicalism had also taken off since the 1960s, and the leaders that were part of the Jesus Movement revival had begun to lead churches themselves. They had begun to lead Christian institutions And they joined forces with what had emerged in the early 1980s and was called the moral majority. And they were leading all of evangelicalism, which we might call Big Eva these days, to wage a culture war. And many of us are familiar with those ideas and those terms that in the 80s and 90s the culture war was on and it was extreme. And there was a culture of the world... We were taught, and there was a culture of evangelicalism. And that culture of evangelicalism was really my world as a teenager. might have been your world as well. As a Christian teenager, we had our own movies. We had our own music. We had our own clothing and T-shirt lines. We had our own bookstores, our own phrases, our own activities. Essentially, we had our own teenage youth group culture. And there was a lot of gatekeeping, a lot of you're in or you're out. You don't do this, you do this. A lot of gatekeeping and rules in that culture. And so what developed, in my mind anyway, and I, and I, I don't ever when I talk about this, and you all have heard me talk about this before, I don't ascribe to any of the people who were leading us during those days any bad motives. I think their motives were good. I think they were trying to protect us. I think they were trying to lead us and disciple us. But what was caught was not necessarily what was taught back in those days. And so what developed in many of our minds as young people was this version of the American dream. It was almost like we saw America going one way and the church came to us and said, look, we're going to tell you how the Christian American dream should work. 
And there was sort of a, a melding of what was in the Bible and what we kind of expected in our American culture. And we saw the, the world's culture going this way, but we were going to kind of maintain something here. And we were going to try to baptize it in, in, into Christianity, it, this certain version that we might call the Christian American dream, or maybe we could call it the American gospel. And that idea was that if you behaved right, and you did certain things, and you made sure that there were other things you never did, then you would have a great marriage with a great sex life, you'd have a wonderful family, and everything would be great for you. It was sort of an implied prosperity gospel. And it wasn't totally without merit. I mean, if you work hard and you try to keep the Ten Commandments, you know, uh, life is probably going to go better for you than if you see how many commandments you can break. We'd all agree with that, wouldn't we? That is to say that if you practice biblical morality, one way that our whole nation was maybe protected in some ways is that there was sort of a forced biblical morality for many years that led us to be a very different country than, different, than other countries in the rest of the world. It was almost like we borrowed from the Puritans for 150 years until we said we don't want those shackles anymore and we cast them off as a culture. But if you will practice biblical morality, it's actually a loving way to live. Now, Christians did not practice it perfectly. We know that. I mean, we did have the civil rights struggle. We had slavery in this country, terrible things that we did, which were just blatantly disobedient to what is taught in Scripture. Scripture teaches very clearly it's wrong to steal, right? What is slavery? Stealing people. And then stealing their labor and not paying them for it. They should have known that was a sin. So I'm not saying that America was perfect, but there was a, a sense for many years that what was in the Bible was right. And what is in the Bible is right. If you will practice a biblical morality, it's loving. Think about the Ten Commandments. They're all a very loving way to behave toward the Lord and towards other people. The only problem is that if you don't couple that biblical morality with a strong understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you get are rule followers. People working hard to be good. And, if, and we get this understanding that, God, if I do my part of the transaction, then you're obligated to do your part of the transaction. If I obey you, and I'm a goody two-shoes, and I make sure I never do all these things that all the bad people do, then you will bless me. Okay? And we start to have a transactional relationship with God where we're expecting Him to give us what we really want here on this earth. That's not Christianity. So if you want to understand me and you kind of want to know the way I tick, which you probably don't, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> if you want to understand even Melissa, kind of where we came from, when we came of age, and how we approach things, and maybe the way I think about church and in life is this. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that our pastors or our teachers were doing anything wrong in what they taught, but what we caught, maybe just because of the culture of evangelicalism, maybe in the confusion of the culture wars, and, and in our teachers' desperate attempt to protect us from ourselves, what we, what we, were, what we caught was that the condition of our heart was dependent upon how we behaved. That's what we learned, is that if you behave a certain way, then you'll have a certain kind of heart. 
But the truth is, what we learn in Scripture, the truth of the gospel is, the way that we act, the way that we behave, is, is dependent upon the condition of our heart. It's not the other way around. We don't behave so we'll have a certain kind of heart. God gives us a certain kind of heart, and that changes our desires, and that changes our behavior. The message kind of ended up being when all the pieces of the culture were put together that uh, even though it wasn't the intention, was that. We were taught that the condition of our heart was really dependent upon our behavior. And so what we did, instead of of developing a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, we developed a relationship with our behavior. Maybe you can relate. Somehow we missed the point. Somehow the American dream got mixed in with the gospel, and the American gospel became something different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's always a danger to the gospel when people try to make it fit within a particular culture. That's what's happening in our passage in Colossians. There were false teachers, and they were trying to take the gospel, and they were trying to take Judaism, and they were trying to make it uh, uh, congruent with Greek thought. Now, the Greeks taught that everybody has a little spark of divine inside of them. And the idea was you've got to get that little spark of divine back to God. And so you've got to escape the flesh. And so when the Christian teachers took Christianity and they took that Greek thought and they put it together, they said the way that you get to God is you deny the body certain things. Asceticism and denial of pleasure and certain foods and you behave a certain way. And and it's almost like a when we think about the way they tried to mix the Greek culture and the, and the Christian uh, truth, we can almost see how that happens many times even in our culture. But because we're so inundated with the way that our culture thinks, we can't help but try to meld it. But just understand this. The kingdom of God is opposed to every culture. We call that the antithesis. There's always a revel. Have you noticed that in your whole life, And they're even talking about it now. There's a book called The Fourth Turning that talks about all these revolutions in history. There's always a revolution, a revolution, a revolution. There's someone in power, and then they lose power, and someone else takes power, and then they lose power. There's always a revolution. And the gospel, Christianity, is always standing over here on the other side and is opposed to that revolution. That revolution is the world, and we're living for Christ. But there's just this tendency we have as Christians to try to jump into the revolution and to try to merge what we do and what we think and how we feel with what's going on in the world. When we are called to be holy, that means we're called to be set apart from the world. Are you set apart from the world? Well, there I was. I was the kid that wanted to show God that I was truly committed to him. And I wanted a good outcome for my life. And I was wondering how I could have all the things that I see other people have. So what kind of things did I do? Well, I, would, I wanted to show God that I, I was sincere. And I wanted to work hard to be good. So I would like take all my secular tapes. And I would put them in a box, a shoe box. And I wrap it in um, duct tape. And then I set it on fire out in the middle of the street. That was, my, that was how I was showing God my devotion. And then I was thinking, probably as I burned them, I was like, well, I'm going to have to buy CDs anyway. <laughs> and it never once dawned on me that, that being kind and loving towards others would actually be Christ-like. Instead, I was burning my tapes and developing like this holier-than-thou attitude towards other people because they didn't burn their tapes. 
I was nothing like Jesus. But there I was with my Bible in my hand, wearing my Christian t-shirt, God's gym, uh, burning my tapes, doing all these things for Jesus. Because I was trying to make sure that I was behaving well enough to try to convince God that he made a good decision when he saved me. And I was a Pharisee. And now I tell people I'm a recovering Pharisee. And although really my behavior hasn't changed, I'm still a teetotaling goody-two-shoes. There's rarely a movie that I think is clean enough to where I'll watch it. I'm repulsed by much of the music that's produced. I waited till I was married to have sex. I blush when people curse or even drink alcohol around me. But here's what I've come to learn about all that rule following that I do. It's all filthy rags. It's not righteousness. The only righteousness, I can keep all those rules to make you think I'm a goody two-shoes. But I have to fight that urge to convince myself or to feel that I am a goody two-shoes. The gospel teaches me that I'm not. The gospel teaches me that, that the only righteousness that I could ever have comes from Jesus Christ. It's not righteousness worked up in me. It's an alien righteousness. It comes from somewhere else. It has to come from Jesus. If you're going to go to heaven, if you're in this room today, if you're going to be with God forever and be acceptable to him, the only way you will do that because you're a sinner is if you get an alien righteousness from Jesus Christ put into your account, your life account, so that when you stand before God one day at the judgment and everybody's going to die one time and then you're going to be judged. And when you, when you die and you're judged, if you're standing before God and the righteousness of Jesus has not been put into your account, you will not be acceptable to God no matter how many tapes you burned. Okay? No matter how many movies you decided not to see, how many cigarettes you decided not to smoke, how many times you decided not to have sex, all that doesn't matter. What matters is not your goodness, but the goodness of Jesus Christ. So, so, so I did all those things, and I still do all those things. I, I just kind of live a certain way. God, I've always said, kept me on a short leash. And, and, and really, I'm thankful for a lot of those rules that I followed because they kept me out of a lot of trouble. But none of it made me more acceptable to God than the worst sinner in the world. And the problem with keeping all the rules and the problem with having a relationship with your behavior is you tend to think that when you're behaving well, God accepts you. And that when you, find, when you sin and you do the thing that you struggle with, whatever it is, and you all know what it, whatever it is that you struggle with, think about that. And when you do that, you think, well, God doesn't, God doesn't love me. Here's the truth. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He, he, he sent his son knowing exactly what we were. The Bible says God knows what's in a man. He would not entrust himself to a man because he knew what was in a man. And that's what we are. We're sinners who need the grace of Jesus Christ. But it's very difficult for you to receive the grace of Jesus Christ when you're trusting in your behavior. I've often told people that even though I knew the gospel, and I was as best I could trusting in Jesus, I knew I couldn't save myself. I was, I was working my behavior so much, and I was concerned so much more about my behavior than knowing Christ. And I've spent the last 25 years trying to break that habit. Now, there's a reason that God tells us not to do certain things and to do certain things, because he loves us. So anytime you're out there trying to break the commandments, you're going to do something that's harming you. Like my argument to you today is not go out and break commandments so that you won't be a legalist. 
My argument is understand the motive and the heart behind the commandment keeping. And if that motive is not love for God and love for other people, you're doing it wrong. Because the commandments are wonderful. The commandments are pure. The commandments are a gift from God to us. But we take everything that's good that God gives us and what do we do with it? We twist it. And we abuse it. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can't. Some of you may say, well, I feel the opposite of the way you do, Chad. I have a heart for the Lord, but I wrestle with my desires and my behaviors. It's hard for me to do what's right. And we all have our own struggles, don't we? And I'm not trying to say your struggle should be mine or that mine should be yours. I'm just trying to kind of set us up for this passage. And I, I think that as I've kind of told you my origin story, as the kids call it, I think they would understand my origin story in Colossae. Because they had these false teachers coming in and they were mixing that Judaism with, and, and Christianity with Greek culture and thought and they were distorting the gospel with a bunch of rules, which is why I didn't wear a tie today, actually. I'm going to wear a tie for the funeral. But I thought, man, I'm preaching a, a sermon against legalism. I'm not wearing a tie. I should take my jacket off, too. <laughs> but they had all these rules. And what they were teaching people was that the way to God... The way to change your heart, the way to make yourself more acceptable to God was by conforming your behavior to these rules. And Paul was combating that because Paul had a gospel of grace. Paul had a gospel that was completely removed from working for your salvation. And whenever these people were, were basically being told to work for their holiness, Paul combated that. And we learn in these uh, verses, 16 to 23, or, uh, yeah, 16 to 23, we learn... Uh, kind of... It's never actually stated to us what the false teachers were teaching, but what's stated to us is uh, Paul's reaction to it. So, like, by gauging his reaction to it, we can kind of get an idea of what they were teaching. So, bear that in mind that we're sort of trying to parse out what was actually being taught there in Colossae at this little backwoods church. Paul had never been there, but he heard they were struggling, so he wrote them this letter. Well, last week we looked in verses 11 through 15, and the aim of that passage was this. The hope, the hope for the believer is that they will realize that they're not good enough and that Jesus is enough and Jesus is sufficient. The one trusting in Christ is filled, forgiven, and the penalty for their sins has been set aside. The enemy's been disarmed and humiliated and totally conquered. That should sound familiar if you were here last week. And then Paul carries on. In verse um, 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. You ever see these shirts that are real popular now? Say, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. Well, that verse doesn't stop right there. There's a lot of things you're going to have to do in this life where you judge things, where you make calls, where you decide this is good and this is bad. You're wrong, I'm right, I'm wrong, you're right, that kind of thing. He says, but don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There were Judaizers that had come into that church, and what they were doing is they were saying, you have to follow the regulations of being a Jew before you can be a Christian. You have to 
not drink this or, or, or not eat this. And you have to observe this day and you have to observe this day and you have to be circumcised and so on. And he was saying, those were a shadow, but now we have Christ and Christ is the substance. The Judy, what we see in the Old Testament is the shadow. It's, it's kind of describing dimly what is to come, but now we have the full vision that is Christ and this covenant's gone away and Christ has made a new covenant. The heart of religion, rather than a relationship with Christ, the heart of religion is that you become more focused on the shadow than the substance. My question to you today, are you more concerned with the shadow or with the substance of Christ? The Christian life should produce in us holiness. Again, our behavior will probably not look different than the goody-two-shoes. Who's being a goody-two-shoes to feel good about himself? But the gospel, the, the, the Christian life fueled by the gospel is radical. It's powerful. It's life-changing. And the way that you know that you pass from death to life is that you love. You love the brothers. The focus on the Christian life is not the holiness that it produces. But the focus of the Christian life is the one who produces the holiness. He says, get your eyes off your behavior because then you're just embracing another kind of self-centeredness. But get your eyes on Jesus. If you wanted to know where Jesus was going, you had to watch him. A disciple could not stare at his own feet and follow Jesus. And it's the same now. We have to have our eyes on Christ. Widows, orphan, children, the poor, the ones struggling. We focus on the cross. We focus on the truth of the gospel, reminding ourselves that we always and constantly need Christ. And that fuels the Christian life. That is what makes us more Christ-like. Then he says in verse 18, a parallel statement to verse 16, let no one disqualify you. Don't let the referee come in and put you out of the game. Insisting on asceticism. That's a big word. It just means you're denying yourself food and pleasures and all the things. Kind of the way the Stoics would in Greek life. And worship of angels. And going on in details about visions. Puffed up without reason, by his sensuous mind. Don't let that person disqualify you. But rather, he kind of describes what we should do. That guy's not doing this. He's not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So these false teachers out there in Colossae are insisting on self-denial. Oh, I forgot to start my sermon. Yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> Got extra time today. <laughs> so these false teachers are insisting on self-denial. Don't do this. Do this. Don't drink this. Don't eat this. And there were other activities besides fasting and abstaining from unclean meats. But they were basing their authority on interactions with angels or visions they said they have. And Paul says these people are puffed up. They're not thinking clearly. They're not they're not reasoning based upon the truth of the gospel and God's word, and they have sensuous minds. Sensuous minds. What does that mean? That they are more concerned with the here and now, the material, what you can sense with your, 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 your uh, ears and your eyes and your nose and your mouth or whatever. They have sensuous minds. They're, they're concerned about what they can see and touch, and they're not concerned with the spiritual. 
So Paul asks the question of them in verse 20. Look at that. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, if you died to the ABCs of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, remember Paul told them last time that they had died with Christ, that they were no longer alive to the world because they were dead to the world. He's saying, why are you acting like you're still alive to this world and you're submitting to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish when they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. If you died to to the world and you're alive in Christ, why are you listening and basing your life and living on human precepts and human teachings and not the teachings of God? Ask yourself that. Are you more influenced by books you get off the self-help aisle at the bookstore? Are you more influenced by people on TikTok? You know, they have a whole bunch of people that wear these women that wear these hats, and they even call those hats influencer hats. Because this is what the ladies that are on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok wear, and they're called the influencers, and they're influencing people for the world. Are you, influ- are you influenced by the world, or are you influenced by the world of God? Do you have a sensuous mind, or do you have a mind that is set on the things of God and the Spirit? He says, these human teachings... And these human precepts, look at verse 23, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Isn't that what I was describing to you earlier? When you have a self-made religion, you're trying to earn your way to heaven, or at least try to prove that God made a good decision in justifying you. They have appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. These people would like take a pig skin, uh, a, a, a pig, uh, what would you call that? Um, I guess skin. And they, they would leave the fur on it, right, from the pig. And you know, that's kind of bristly. And they would, they would make a vest and turn it inside out and just wear that to punish themselves all day long to try to get that spark back to God. <clears throat> he says, all of this stuff, this self-denial and this discipline, it seems like it's wise. It seems like religion. But look what he says at the very end of verse 23. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Following rules for the sake of following rules has no value in changing your heart. Only God can change your heart. That's, it's truly amazing how much time we spend on things that the Bible tells us right there won't work. They have no value. All of that has no value. What does have value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh? Because I think all of us sitting here would say, we want to please God. We don't want to indulge our flesh. We want to serve our king. Being set apart for Christ, you know, stopping the indulgence of the flesh, that's good. But it has to be done in the context of being set apart for Christ because Christ changes our priorities. He changes our cares and our wants and our desires. There's a difference between Christ following that produces holiness and rule following that produces self-righteousness. And that's where this little church was struggling. But the focus on rule following does not stop the indulgence of the flesh. You can, you can take yourself and you can remove yourself from all of those things. You can be like a monk and you can just say, the world is so tempting to me the electronics, the books, the television, the music, the movies, all of it, what the world, it, it, it just, my, it's my heart, my heart, it appeals to my heart and my heart wants it, so I'm going to go live in a cave and I'm going to deny myself everything so I won't sin. 
But that's not going to change your heart. You'd go right back over to all the world and you would still love it all. Because you've just kind of taken yourself out, but there's been no heart change. But what does have value? Look back up at verse 19. Here's what has value. Holding fast to the head. That's Jesus. Holding fast to Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God, not a growth that is from you. And this is one of the hardest things for us to understand, but it plays out in reality for most of us. We come to Christ and we decide we're going to be as good as we can be for Jesus. And then after we exhaust ourselves trying to be good and trying to be righteous in our own strength, we finally fall on Christ and say, I can't do this without you. And we start to rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and we begin to see our lives change. When my focus is on me, I want everyone to be just like me. So I will feel justified in the things that I do. But when my focus is on Christ, when I'm grounded in the gospel, when I'm holding fast to his goodness and I'm receiving from him the body, my body, this church body, it's nourished, it's held together, and it grows with a growth that is from God. If I said to you today, what do you need to grow in Christ? I could just, if I, now you've all heard the sermon, so you'll have a different answer, hopefully. But if I said to you, what do you need to do to grow in Christ? You know what you would probably do? You would start telling me all these things you needed to do. I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this, and then I'll grow in Christ. You would tell me that your behavior would affect your relationship with Christ. And in some ways, that's not a totally wrong statement. I mean, I hate to caveat everything I'm saying, but yeah, there's, some th- there's things you can do that will affect your relationship with Christ, for sure. <clears throat> but if we were just thinking, if our hearts were saying, I really want to grow as a Christian, you, you would tell me a bunch of things that you would say, I just need to get up and do this and this and this. And, and maybe you're here like me, you're a recovering Pharisee, you can rattle off all your shortcomings as a believer. I don't read the Bible enough. I don't pray enough. I'm not nice enough to people. And you would just have this nagging sense that you need to work harder. Imagine if you felt that way about any other friendship, though. Imagine if that's the way you felt about other relationships in your life. Well, you said, well, what do you need to do to be a better husband? Well, I guess I could, I could, be, more, uh, I could be more diligent about taking out the trash. I, I really, I, you know, I don't load the dishwasher well enough. I, I, gosh, you know, um, Melissa puts it in there, and it looks like a work of art. I put it in there, it looks like a monkey did it. Uh, you know, I, I just think... That's the reality, right? That's right. Yeah. You know, the number one thing that when, <laughs> this, is, this is funny, the number one thing that we encounter in marriage counseling, like the number one argument is always the dishes. It's, it's, it's true. So, so I can say, well, I could, I, you know, to fix our relationship, I've seen the dishes better. And we could actually sit down with people and say, okay, if we get these, if we get these dishes figured out, you guys are going to have a great marriage. You know what the real problem is? They're not being kind to each other. They're not loving one another. They're not laying down their lives for one another. Like, we miss the point when we get into that granular sense of, like, let's look at the actual behaviors and let's focus on those instead of focusing on the heart. I mean, how, how enjoyable is a relationship that you have where everybody's always keeping score? And yet, how many of us, that's the way we approach our relationship with God? What if, well, here's what I've done for you. These are my points. What are your points? What have you done for me? That's not a friendship. That's a contract. We don't do our relationships like that, and we shouldn't do our relationship with the Lord that way because the score was settled at Calvary. Christ has already met your greatest need. He's already shown you the most love anybody could ever show you. He died for you. 
And what he wants is for you to come to him and to rest in him and to know his heart. Come to me, all who labor. All you guys who are trying to work for it. Come to me. Those of you that have let these rules and these burdens become heavy ladens to you. Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Today the invitation is clear. The invitation is not to come to the regulations, not to come to the Christian life as a way to live and follow rules, but for you to come today to the Redeemer. Come to Jesus and find rest. And then watch how when you are resting in Jesus, all those things you couldn't do before because you were trying so hard to do them will be a result of your new nature in Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ears. It soothes our sorrows, it heals our wounds, and drives away our fears. It makes the wounded spirit whole, it calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and weary to the rest. How weak the effort of my heart, how cold my warmest thought. But when I see you as you are, I'll praise you as I ought. Till then, I would your love proclaim with every fleeting breath. And may the music of your name refresh my soul in death.